Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Dukkha. Dukkha is the catch-all word that refers to all forms of human suffering from the most mundane inconveniences all the way to the great sufferings of old age, sickness, and death. And the Buddha's entire teaching was basically focused on minimizing human suffering. That's really what he cared about. He didn't uh, he wasn't a religious figure in the sense that he never proposed to talk about where the earth came from. He had no interest in the nature of gods or deities. He had uh, very little, to say the least, metaphysics in his teachings. He was essentially a proto-psychologist, and his concern was how do we alleviate suffering. In fact, that's when he defined all of his dharma, as towards uh, alleviating needless suffering in life. So there are three kinds of dukkha, or suffering the Buddha taught. The first is what's called dukkha dukkha. And dukkha dukkha is all the suffering that comes from physical pain. That can mean old age, illness, It can be the process of dying. It could be the process of a really horrific event that literally feels or gets translated into a somatic kick in the stomach where we literally just feel all the wind and are, you know, like we've been gut punched. So anything that creates physical pain is dukkha dukkha. And the Buddha pretty much said that this kind of suffering is inevitable. In fact, uh, he said that straightforwardly, that he could not propose any way to alleviate physical pain, that it would be absurd to promise such a, a practice or a path. The second form of suffering is viparinama dukkha, and that's the, as a result of the fact that there's uh, occasional, if not, uh, uh, really sporadically predictable uh, degrees of physical pain in life, human beings tend to cling to pleasures, sensual pleasures, things that feel good, things that offer a sense of security that uh, make us feel safe. Um, and when those things that made us feel good and pleasurable and safe come to an end, We lose them, uh, they disappear. Uh, If they're a person, they grow old or we become separated from them. Anything that we uh, uh, attached to or uh, grasped onto for protection or security that stops working, that's viparanama sutta, dukkha. It's the kind of suffering that comes from impermanence. Things don't last. Um, the, your favorite restaurant, you've been going there for years, you walk down the street just ready to get your favorite taco, and there it is, it's closed, uh, it's lost its lease. That's a, a rather mundane example, but uh, you get the idea. Anything that stems from change, from things coming to an end. Now, the third form of dukkha, uh, is Sankara. And Sankara, is, this is the most subtle, and many teachers uh, define it uh, oddly differently. Um, my definition is pretty much from the Pali Canon, which is uh, one of the older uh, uh, documentations of the teachings. And Sankara means things we put together or create or add on to, or add on to, create. 
And really what the Buddha is referring to, all teachers pretty much agree with this, is thinking, thought. We, in any situation in life, there's a sensory experience, both interoceptive, you have your body sensations, exteroceptive, you have the world around you, you have all these sights, things coming on, and then we add on to it, obviously, feelings, but most prominently, thought. We have an inner narrative that basically gives us a running account of our life that we try to, we rely on to make sense. And in a way, we cling to these stories for security because given the fact that there's pain in life, given the fact that things we cling to, uh, people we cling to, or uh, at times, individuals at times we cling to that are not reliable or go away, abandon us or are separated from us, the final last way we try to have a sense of security is by trying to translate life into a story, an idea, uh, an image, something that we can carry around with us to try to make life portable, to hold on to the times where we felt loved and secure. We, and you see this now today, we don't even have to do this in our minds, when you sit by any area that's of interest to tourists, of course one of the first things we see is tourists trundling up before the Manhattan skyline, if you live in my neighborhood, and what they do is essentially take a cell phone, take a, a selfie, there it is, I was here, and then they walk away. So the idea is to transform this full, overwhelmingly uh, uh, experience, this moment in time, into something that encapsulates it, something that we can hold on to, to show to other people, that will make our life seem concretized, will make things seem uh, real, weighty, like, like a sense of there being a moment that we've frozen and we can hold on to. And of course, um, this creates suffering. Because in one level, the mo when we are busy representing our life as thoughts and images and uh, taking uh, recordings and snapshots and uh, essentially representing our experience, we're not actually, of course, living it. It's actually stressful to continually uh, feel the need, in addition to actually being in one's life, to uh, constantly try to make it into something more, to try to make it attain a, a status of solidity when everything, the Buddha said, is flowing, is in change, everything is impermanent. There is nothing that can be frozen. And yet Sankara, this trying to uh, capture a moment and, and render it something that we can hold on to, uh, is thus doomed to failure. Moreover, we really want to come up after we go through painful experiences with some kind of summary of what happened so that we'll never have to go through pain again. We're, uh, there's this very human desire to uh, resist suffering. And one of the chief ways we do this, according to the Dhamma, is we try to figure out the perfect lesson, the perfect insight, as I was saying yesterday, I, I, I literally heard this once. A group of, a table of a group of guys was sitting nearby, and they were lamenting. Uh, one of the, the fellows had had a gone through a breakup, and he said aloud, literally, with the greatest of authority, "That'll teach me for dating a Canadian," which is. I think the great example of how uh, so often lame our desire to encapsulate the 
overwhelming complexity of our experience and our relational lives into some simple story or idea that we believe will inoculate us from pain. Representing life is stressful. It, while we're doing it, the body gets tight, the mind gets defensive, we're no longer in anything like a state of flow or ease, we're not connecting. We're worrying about how something will look in the future when we look back now at what we're representing. You can tell by how important this process is by the amount of words that uh, uh, we devote in our language to summing up and encapsulating and uh, essentially uh, trying to latch on to the core experience. Words like epitomize, recap, rehash, sum up, to digest, to review, to pare down, to boil down, to get to the point, to put it all in a nutshell. Essentially, this idea that we can reduce life to a very simple uh, image or story without doing it incredible damage. This uh, gives birth to what uh, Buddha talks of samsara, the endlessly moving through one cycle of existence after another, which simply means parts of our life, if you're like me, a secular Buddhist. And what we're looking for is, more than anything else, a moment in time where we can finally come to a, a stop, a rest, where we no longer have to chase after things to make us feel secure and we can fully arrive in a place of uh, where we've landed in our existence. And the great 20th century philosopher Derrida said this ongoing hunt is for what he called the transcendent signifier, the perfect pearl of wisdom, the perfect symbol, the perfect image, the perfect idea, something that will essentially we can hold on to and we will be forever safe. This unending treadmill of constantly leaning into the future, looking for some time that doesn't slip by us, looking for a moment where we don't feel the life slipping through our fingers, uh, existentialists called that angst, by the way. Um, we might, when we come to a certain point in our life, wonder, well, frankly, what's the point? Why am I uh, striving, working so hard? Why am I uh, so caught up in these minor dramas, why am I uh, so stressed out? And in Buddhism, the point is what's called Nibbana, or Nirvana, if you like Sanskrit. Nirvana is that time, it literally, it doesn't mean enlightenment, by the way. Uh, there's a different word for that. Uh, but when you are, you reach Nibbana, you haven't reached some perfect insight or wisdom. It's not about some rarefied gem of an idea or thought that makes sense of everything. It's actually, the word means to extinguish or to finally relax, to let go of everything that we're hoping the future will provide. And Nibbana is far more realizable than we give it credit for. It's defined literally as the putting aside of craving and, or literally the renunciation of craving that thing that's, that thing that I believe is missing from me that somehow I'll get in the future, that belief that I'm 
broken or incomplete or faulty. And it's landing in any time or moment of my life where I come to a complete stop and I, I stop rushing and I stop planning the future. I literally open to what is available to me. In the three highest insights of the Dharma, the Buddha explains this process. The first highest insight is called shunyata, and it literally it means emptiness. And shunyata is essentially uh, finally recognizing that all things are fluid, passing, impermanent. Nothing is lastingly solid. The human mind has no core fixed identity. And even more so, one of the key insights of shunyata is that our thought or our thinking is not the epicenter of the mind. I think one of the great metaphors for this is uh, from millennia, human beings believed the earth was the epicenter of the universe until through close observation, Galileo and Copernicus showed that in fact, we're not. We're just one more planet and one more solar system and one more universe. Uh, that's all we are. We're not the center of any, everything or pretty much anything. And um, thought up until Freud and, and William James in the 1890, two of my heroes uh, amongst many, uh, they pretty much had their own uh, Copernican revolution. They each showed that thought, in fact, is not the center of human experience or mental functioning. In fact, thought not only comes about very late as the Buddha taught in the chain of mental experience. The Buddha said it comes at last, and he was right. Uh, we now know that uh, there are many, many, many pre-conscious regions that put sight and sound, even prepare us to have a thought, action impulses, all of those events happen pre-consciously. And at the very, very end of the process, right before you, you undertake the action and you, you reach for the thing or you uh, make the statement, you have this one brief 200 millisecond uh, advantage where thought can stop, step in and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. This is a really bad idea. Let's hold off for a second. That's it. None of our behavioral impulses, none of our actions are driven by conscious thought. They're actually propelled by pre-conscious, right hemispheric centers of the brain. So shunyata, the key insight is that uh, there's no center of the mind, there's no identity to the mind. The mind is a bunch of processes, emotions, feelings, uh, ongoing homeostatic events, and finally thought. And that when we try to make sense of life or hold on to life by thinking or relying on thought, we're engaging in uh, a a battle that's doomed from the very start. The second major insight is Tathata, and that essentially is very much uh, aligned with what we've been talking about. Tathata basically states in a nutshell that all of our experience, all of life is inexpressible. It cannot be summarized, it cannot be represented, it cannot be encapsulated in the mind. It's too big, it's too complex. Right now in this moment, there are so many different things going on in each of us that the idea that we can somehow uh, express it or turn it into something that is lasting 
is um, essentially it's a, a fruitless hunt. Now, that's not saying that expressing or disclosing our emotions in language is useless. It's actually a very good idea. Uh, in trauma work, one of the great breakthroughs that happens is when somebody can begin to narrate a heretofore repressed emotional event, can start to narrate it, but it's never actually fully uh, contained or represented, only a part of any event, any trauma, any moment in our life is ever caps is ever contained in our language utterances. When emptiness and tathata, which literally means suchness, are understood, basically what we're left with is the idea that there's no center of the mind. The mind is a dispersed set of processes, and this has, of course, been verified by all contemporary neuroscience. And if you want, you can look up the work of Gazaniga and Ledoux and uh, Shore and so forth. And also the idea that our, our experience is far too complex to ever be caught in a representation, an idea. The final big insight is atamayata, and this is the last word in Buddhism. This is the word that is synonymous. It's the practice that is synonymous with nibbana, the final arriving at what the Buddha proposed was the ultimate goal. Atamayata states that the transcendent mind doesn't try to represent or add anything to experience. It simply immerses itself in experience. It is fully present. It does not try to... Um, and even furthermore, the, this profound state of atamiyata, nothing is separate. There's even an insider wisdom that when we truly become aware of the feelings, the body sensations, the emotional states, the moods that are passing through us, and all the connecting sensations and impressions, we begin to let go of this idea that we are somehow separate, this thing that is different from the world around us. It becomes impossible for us to step outside of our experience. There's no thing that can be known in a way because we are part of what's being known. I know this, now I'm sounding pretty abstract, but this is where the teachings sort of reach their conclusion and they're not the easiest to put into words. If you think of uh, it in terms of uh, could you, if you never saw a mirror in your life or reflective surface, would you ever have an idea of what you really look like? It would be hard because you wouldn't be able to, you just would have the parts of yourself that you could see, but so much of yourself you couldn't see. And that's essentially a metaphor for what it's like trying to be aware and encapsulate part of our lives in thought or in ideas or in images. We're too much apart. We can't, there's nothing separate. So there's nothing that could possibly be catching or documenting our experience. Anyway, uh, while all of this might sound impossibly heady, in fact, um, uh, and rarefied. In fact, we're doing this all the time. One of the wonderful works of the last 20 years in contemporary psychology is a book by McGilchrist called Master and Emissary. It's a summary of the latest neuropsychology of the bilateral brain, left and right hemispheres of the human mind. And for a long time, there was this idea that they were completely separate and doing, you know, that you either were left brain or right brain, or when you were doing one task, you were left brain or right brain, and then that 
turned out to be false. And then for a while, people just didn't bother thinking about it. All the while, neuro, neuroscientists were still doing a lot of tests, and they what they what they found is that while almost all human functioning requires both hemispheres to be working, um, they do have very very different tasks, very very different processes. In any given moment, your left hemisphere is doing what we call representing life in words and language. It interprets life. It's the part of the brain that creates what the Buddha called the fourth foundation. It is all about taking this uh, deeply complex, overwhelmingly uh, interconnected moment in time and trying to summarize it in a couple of words and images that we can carry around. That's what your left brain does. It also focuses attention and it likes to tell stories chronologically. It's very slow in its processing. Your left hemisphere essentially uh, is always, while you're conscious, in the foreground of your attention. That's what you're aware of. Your thoughts, focusing on one specific part of the visual field and creating a story about that person or thing that you're looking at. They're looking at. In terms of evolution, the left hemisphere of mammals was all about accumulating things. When a bird would hunt for a twig or a berry, it was using its left hemisphere to focus and, uh, and to extract from the world this one thing that it needed. And in human beings, that ability to focus and extract turned into language. And that's what we use our left brain for. We also use it to move our right hands and to do logic and schematic thinking. The right brain is working all the time in the background. You're not aware of it, what it's doing, but it's working all the time. And interestingly enough, it's playing a significant role in your experience right now. While you listen to the words I'm saying, with your left hemisphere, your right brain is simply taking in my tone of voice, looking at my body language, all of that, it's processing unconsciously, it's scanning the room, noting if anybody's moving suspiciously, and your right brain's job is simply to ask the question, am I safe right now? Am I secure? Am I connected? Or am I in any vulnerable state? That's all it does. It keeps you alive. And birds, while the left hemisphere is looking for the nuts and the berries and the twigs, the right hemisphere in the background is focusing attention on where predators are, if there's a cat, or where other birds are, or where there's a branch it could fly to if it got attacked. So the right brain is survival, looking in the background for anything new or novel. The left hemisphere is all about language, interpreting, representing life. When we look at a new terrain, the left hemisphere turns it into a map. It represents it in a simple, very simple map, but the right hemisphere sees the complexity of everything around us. The right hemisphere is what holds all of our emotional moons, mood, uh, emotional uh, injuries, uh, wounds, I should say, and um, the right hemisphere connects with us through gut feelings and through emotions. So if early on in life you have an attachment wound where a caregiver who you thought was reliable suddenly disconnects from you or abandons you, that wound is stored in your right orbital frontal. And from that point on, in relationships, You'll have an internal working model that will expect abandonment and will put you on guard while you're in relationships looking for when the abandonment will happen. If, on the other hand, you had secure caregiving, you had a secure base in your life, you had a place where you could run to for, for safety when you were exploring the world, then you will expect that in relationships. If in childhood you 
survived abuse, you will expect abuse and you will gravitate likely to people who are abusive. All of these are stored in the right hemisphere and all of the groundworks of attraction and uh, how we move through the world through emotionally is worked on in the background. The right hemisphere is timeless. Nothing that's happened in the past is gone until we show the right brain that things are different. An event in childhood can feel emotionally like it happened yesterday. So what I'm gravitating towards saying is that all the time there is this embodied, timeless realm that feels interconnected with the world around us, that is not interested in representing life and words or ideas, that constantly feels a sense of connectedness, that is, lives in a timeless present where nothing ever is lost. And this is important. The human tendency to try to make sense of life after we go through painful experiences and come away with that perfect insight, I'll never date Canadians again, is such a needless activity because when you are emotionally wounded, your right hemisphere notes all of the sensations and events that happen and it will let you know, if you know how to read your body, know how to read the literally gut feelings that are constantly signaled to you, it will let you know not to trust the same situation again. You don't have to carry around summaries in your mind. Sometimes we need to instruct the right hemisphere that things that were true in childhood are no longer true now. People uh, will follow their gut and will avoid conflict because in childhood conflict felt like the end of the world and that leaves us conflict avoidant in adult life. But in general, you can trust your emotional mind to protect you. That's its job. We don't have to worry about losing anything. The emotional mind never forgets. Finally, I'll just conclude with Abraham Maslow's The Pyramid of Needs, Hierarchy of Needs, but essentially this pyramid leads towards what's called self-actualization. Once you get all your you get food, shelter, you are connected with people who are safe to disclose your emotions. The final achievement of self-actualization is the ability not only to feel and disclose whatever emotional state is happening authentically, but it's the ability to, in his words, appreciate life in every moment with awe and pleasure and wonder however stale those experiences seem to others. It's a, an ability to empathize to the obliteration of ego boundaries to a degree that others would consider impossible. It's an ability to embrace the ambiguity and the mysteriousness of the present moment. It's the ability to let go of striving for an end to any task or any process of our life and simply to fully land and arrive in our life in any moment completely as it is without any sense that there's something missing or I'm on the way to something better or more important. We're now going to do an Atamiyata meditation and at the end you will all be enlightened Try to find a seated, upright position and don't try to look like a meditator. Don't try to look like the Buddha. Don't try to look like the person seated next to you. Don't try to look like anyone else. Just try to be yourself, relaxing, and then all you do is you take 
your head and you tilt it slightly back like you're looking at a tall building just so that your head doesn't it doesn't slouch in front of your chest so that that's how we add an element of alertness just keeping the head a little bit more with a little effort just a little bit more uplifted but now we're going to re uh, relax the rest of the body it's important to remember that when we reach those times in life those places we've longed to visit that place in the country that isolated spot at the beach uh, spot by a river the way we truly arrive in our life and tell the mind that something important is happening is when we cultivate a body that says I've finally landed I'm finally home in my life the most important part of this process is the vagal vagus nerve which runs down the front of the body so we'll be relaxing that first take a full deep in-breath like you're smelling a scented candle and as you do so lift your shoulders up like you're trying to lift them over your head and just hold them there for a moment and then as you breathe out slowly drop your shoulders like you're putting down two heavy bags and you've reached your destination and you're just dropping those bags and you slightly if it feels right pull your shoulders a little back so it opens up your chest you got lots of space available and now for the second full in-breath pulling in your belly tightening your abdominal muscles like you're trying to pull your waist in an inch or two and then as you breathe out fully slowly soften the belly nobody's looking just have a nice round release soft belly and just try to receive the breath from now on into that pliant abdominal area and then for the third full in-breath squinching your toes clenching your buttocks making fists clenching your jaw tightening the muscles around the eyes and the forehead and then breathe out and let's relax all of those muscle groups when we breathe in slowly and fully and we breathe out slowly it's a way to speak to the oldest regions of the brain the brain stem the amygdala and just it tells the fear and survival parts of the brain I'm okay I'm safe I'm all right right now thinking can't do anything about it but other than trigger it but breathing can deactivate the fear centers of the brain if you were on that beach blanket you'd feel all the muscles in your back softening into the sand and you'd feel the your eyes beginning to settle behind the eyelids they wouldn't be bouncing about they would know that there's nothing happening 
we're just landing in life, which means we have nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to take care of, no one to please, nothing to accomplish, everything has been taken care of, nowhere to go. And for some of us, this idea of having nothing to do, nowhere to go, can feel almost a little vulnerable, but just see if you can slowly breathe and just take care of that part of yourself that feels it constantly needs to be busy, that taking care of ourselves in some ways an indulgence. We need to reparent that part of the mind. So all we're going to do for a little while in silence is just try to be with the sensations of our body breathing and the contact sensations of sitting on a cushion. Without adding anything. And by adding anything I mean adding thought. Now thought will on its own pop up and that's okay. Our job is simply not to investigate into it. You could think of it as on Netflix, all the shows pop up on the screen and if you click on one then you're suddenly watching that show. So there'll be different thoughts that will approach you. And our job is to see how long we can go without clicking on any of those thoughts and launching those virtual reality inner movies in our mind. And what will happen is the thought will grab hold of your attention and that's okay. Totally natural. In fact, the moment you realize that you've drifted away, you've been kidnapped by a thought, that's something to celebrate because in doing so, you've become mindful. You've become aware once again. And it's very easy to return to this place of ease and peace. You simply relax into the sensation of your body breathing, the chest expanding and contracting, or the belly, or the air at the tip of the nose, and the feeling of yourself seated. So let's just sit. And in a little while, I'll add another sensation to hold in mind.
So while you're holding the awareness of your body breathing, and if you can still feel that sensation of making contact with what we'll call the earth, the feeling of a ground, the feeling of your body breathing, staying alive. Now listen to the sound furthest to your left, all the way as far as you can possibly sense to the left. Perhaps just a sense of some distant, fuzzy, staticky sound, or maybe a sense of cars and traffic, distant sounds from the street below. And then listen all the way to the right, and maybe you hear the air conditioner or another sound, even beyond that. Now see if you could create in the mind an entire horizon of awareness comprised of all the sounds appearing between the most distant sound to the left, the most distant sound to the right, an expansive landscape. And see if you can remove the sense of your outline or your body in this picture, just endless space from the left to the right comprised of sound and slightly below in our sensations the feeling of the body expanding and contracting with the breath and then just below that the contact with the earth three vertical levels of sensations, sensations spanning the entire horizon, comprised of sound. How much of this can you hold in your awareness at one time? Can you immerse yourself in this moment telling your mind this is the time in life that deserves to be learned from.
So now we have the ground which we're seated upon, the body that is alive and breathing, sensations of expansion and release. We have a horizon of sounds. And now add into this awareness observing attention itself. Where is your mind focusing on? And whenever your mind focuses on any one sensation, whether it's a thought that appears or just the sound or a body sensation or the breath, Whenever it starts to focus on one thing, just release it. Just bring your awareness back to the entire field of sensations. Don't push anything away, but don't allow your mind to spotlight its attention on one thing. Just keep your awareness open and spacious as fully immersed in this moment as you can be. You're drinking everything in. You don't want to lose track of any sensation that's present. Anytime you feel the mind contract around the thought, you'll notice that your body will start to tense. So relax the body. And then the mind will begin to once again open to the present. Just keep practicing. The last couple of minutes before we close, see if you can let go of any struggle, just release into this moment. Letting go of any sense that your mind is encased in your head or that your mind is separate from anything everything you're experiencing from the most distant sound, sensation, all of the world is in your mind. There's no outside. There's no longer any separation. There's just this moment being known.
So in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl and the request is when you hear the sound, just slowly open up your eyes enough to look at the ground in front of you and try to integrate sight, colors, light into your awareness in such a way that you don't lose track of how your body feels, sounds. The temptation when we start to add the visual field into awareness is to just return to this very reduced state of awareness of just thinking our thoughts and looking around, not aware of any of the important messages, all the emotional circuits of the brain are sending us through the body.